Well, I think uh, first and foremost, what we try to keep in front of everybody is that um, we have to be adaptable, we have to be agile, uh, we have to focus on the things that we can control and the things that we can have an impact on. You are listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board. Welcome to this episode of CEO Perspectives, a signature series by the Conference Board. CEO Perspectives are conversations that take an objective, nonpartisan look at a range of subjects that matter most to business leaders. To help make sense of these topics, we sit down with thought leaders and do what we do best at the Conference Board, provide trusted insights for what's ahead. I'm Laurie Esposito-Murray, President of the Committee for Economic Development, the Public Policy Center of the Conference Board. In today's conversation, we will discuss leadership in challenging times, where we feature the outstanding business leaders who are the recipients of CED's Distinguished Leadership Awards for Corporate Citizenship and Business Stewardship. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with our 2023 honoree, Jim Fitterling. Jim is the chair and CEO of Dow, a global material science company with $57 billion in annual sales in 2022. Jim has played a key role in Dow's transformation. The goal that Jim set for Dow when he became CEO in 2018 was for Dow to be the most innovative, customer-centric, inclusive, and sustainable material science company in the world. He leads a company whose core values are integrity, respect for people, and protecting our planet. These are all core values underpinning the mission of the Committee for Economic Development and the Distinguished Leadership Awards. So welcome, Jim. Pleased to have you joining us for this very important discussion today. It's really great to be with you, Laurie. Thank you for having me on on the podcast today. So Jim, you became CEO in 2018, and within less than two years, the pandemic hit, and you have been leading Dow through major social and economic disruptions. So I'd like to start by asking you, what are the core principles that you lead through disruption with? Well, I think uh, first and foremost, what we try to keep in front of everybody is that um, we have to be adaptable, we have to be agile, uh, we have to focus on the things that we can control and the things that we can have an impact on. And we have to realize that we're in a more volatile and, and an uncertain environment. And we had that mindset even before the pandemic hit. We're in an industry that's changed a lot um, o- over the history of the chemical industry. We're in an enabling industry that helps many other industries, most of the things that you use uh, every day um, exist and and to change over time. And so I don't know that change is necessarily new to us, but when it comes at you at the pace as it does during a pandemic, you have to be pretty adaptable and pretty agile. Yeah, and then compounded uh, by the geopolitical disruption that immediately followed that as well as the economic disruption. Uh, so. Given all the major headwinds that uh, you're facing as as CEO of of a major company, supply chain challenges, geo- geopolitical disruptions, as you know, I just mentioned labor shortages. What are, what are you most optimistic about, and what are you most worried about looking to the future? Yeah, well, I think what I'm most optimistic about is with some of the challenges that we face, um, whether it's a, a more sustainable future, um, uh, tackling climate change, tackling some of the challenges that we're tackling with uh, plastic waste is our ability to innovate and and move ourselves forward and, and get through some of those issues. I think on the on the worry side, obviously inflation in the near term, you know, how, 
the only way that we know to control inflation is really by cooling down the economy. And you just don't want to get into a situation where you kill the economy. And I think obviously the Fed's trying to to navigate that as best as they can, but we want to do it in a way where the economy can pick up some momentum. If we take all the momentum out, if we get into stagflation, then I think that, that becomes a big concern. Probably the biggest geopolitically, the biggest um, concern I have is, and it's the same whether you're in the United States or around the world, is just the polarization between um, parties, you know, and it, this is not unique to the United States. We see it everywhere. Um, and the inability to find a, a good common middle ground that lifts everybody up. Right now, we're, we seem to spend too much time fighting each other rather than uh, helping each other get to a better spot. So to pick up uh, on the sustainability issue, which was one of your key uh, key goals uh, when you became CEO in 2018, you've set the goal of reaching net zero by 2050, which is particularly ambitious, especially given that half of Dow's business isn't plastics uh, that have been depending on energy from fossil fuels. So how are you achieving success with the energy transition? This is a major challenge. Yeah, we have a um, we have a major impact. Um, obviously, our our CO two scope one and two emissions are thirty five million tons, and so to completely eliminate that by twenty fifty is a, is a big task. About half of what we create from a CO two footprint is by generating power and steam, and the other half is uh, the furnaces that we use to crack ethane to make ethylene, uh, which is the feedstock for plastics. Um, I'd say on the power and steam side, uh, a big focus will be moving towards hydrogen um, and also nuclear. And so we've got a project in Seadrift, Texas, to have the first industrial scale uh, small modular reactor facility, which is is the core to taking that entire site at Seadrift to zero uh, CO2 emissions and replacing uh, all of our combined cycle gas uh, systems uh, in order to do that. On the ethylene side of the equation, obviously, you know, we crack ethane to make ethylene. And so when you touch a plastics product, the product you're touching is actually not combusted, but the heat in the furnaces is. And so we've got to find a way to replace that natural gas combustion. Well, hydrogen and carbon capture is uh, what looks like is going to be the winning solution. And so in, in Canada and Alberta, we've got the first major project which will be to build the world's first net zero ethylene and plastics facility. And then after we've built that new facility, which will be 2 million uh, metric tons of capacity, we will retrofit the existing facility to take its emissions to zero. So uh, it will be 20% of our global ethylene production, a little bit higher than that of our polyethylene production, uh, all at net zero. And, and that demonstration to do that on that scale will be the be the first step towards replicating that two or three more times, and, and that'll help us take the whole footprint to net zero. Well, that's really interesting. And and you're right uh, in the bullseye of what this ma- major uh, public policy uh, transformation that we're going through over the uh, just over even the past year with the Inflation Reduction Act um, uh, incentives and um, uh, the Infrastructure Bill, the CHIPS Act uh, with its R&D. In this transformation, how important is uh, 
public policy, the consistency of public policy, and what more should government be doing in collaboration with the private sector? I think, to me, if, if we want to set good policy, smart policy, we need to, to keep it simple and high level and allow innovation to happen. And so when we put incentives in place, a great example in IRA was we were we were agnostic on the hydrogen economy in terms of what form of hydrogen, green hydrogen, blue hydrogen, pink hydrogen, you name it. And you know, whereas the European Union was much more specific and I think boxed themselves in a little bit being too specific on green hydrogen. Green hydrogen is quite expensive today, but uh, blue hydrogen and carbon capture can allow us within a, a reasonable affordability to convert in entire industries to net zero. And, uh, you know, I think obviously incentives for alternatives are important, but we also have to think about baseload power and electricity. Only 20% of the electricity that people use today is electricity is 20% of the whole energy pool that we use today. 80% of it is not electric. 80% of it is the gas that we use, um, the coal that's used to fire steel furnaces and aluminum smelters. You know, we've got to replace that. And, and so we need all of those materials to be able to drive to a net zero economy. And if we suddenly say, you can't do any of that anymore and, and the focus on the fuel source instead of the emissions, then you get yourself into a bad spot. So I think we've focused on the emissions and now we need to think about, you know, how do we get to a price on carbon um, and, and setting one that's not going to back us into a corner, but one that's also going to facilitate and speed up the investments. And, and the reason I say a price on carbon and not a tax on carbon is I think the financial community responds different ways to them. If you tax carbon, they look at that as a revenue generator for the government, and, and we're not really certain where that money is going to get spent. If you put a price on carbon, that's a return for an investment for recovering that CO2. So let's say there was a price on carbon of 85 or $100 a ton. Then if I make an investment in a uh, hydrogen uh, generator or an autothermal reformer to convert that natural gas to hydrogen, then I can get $100 back on that return through that price on carbon. That's an incentive for me to invest. And that's an incentive for the trillions of dollars that's out in the marketplace today that wants to go after uh, good environmental sustainability projects to come into the market. And that kind of policy will accelerate the transition, not slow it down. Well, that's really interesting. These are a number of these issues uh, CED has just taken on with our task force on climate, energy, and the environment with the uh, solution brief we just issued. And you're picking up on your point on the, the significance of innovation. Uh, digital transformation has been really a key priority for you, and it helped you with uh, responding to the pandemic, uh, but it also propelled your R&D efforts. Uh, I'm just curious uh, if you could share with us how you're assessing the challenges and opportunities of generative AI at Dow. Yeah, obviously we do a lot with AI today, and so we've, we've invested a lot to uh, automate, you know, all of our labs. Um, in fact, you know, before we ever go into a lab to do an experiment, mostly we do computer modeling to kind of narrow the field. Uh, so that we can speed up the commercialization times and not not run those experiments that aren't 
don't have the pro probability to be successful. Now with generative AI, you know, I think the world thinks about it in terms of going out and searching uh, the whole World Wide Web and, and finding all the information we can. But if you're dealing with a scientific company like ours and you're dealing with well understood data and and hundred more than a hundred years worth of data and and quality of data that we can control and you can mine that data, you can suddenly put uh, AI to work with your could be customer service reps, sales reps, uh, technical service people, helping customers formulate new products. You can put it to work uh, in your organization. Just think about, you know, we have to do a lot of work with uh, legal in terms of intellectual property. So think about the amount of work that could be done uh, and time-saving work that could be done on going and curating a lot of information that has to be gathered and, and sought through. Um, and so we're looking at, you know, we have an open AI instance today on our DAO platforms, and we actually have teams actively experimenting with it and brainstorming with it how we could use it. I think it's going to be a lot like uh, AI and robotics today. It's going to be a, a great co-pilot for our teams, and it's going to help us get productivity in an environment with wage inflation and a slowing economy where where productivity is hard to find right now. Uh, any words of advice to your CEO colleagues on on what type of guide rails they should put around their uh, use of AI? I think data, um, controlling the data, uh, making sure that you don't let um, inadvertently let your IP slip out of your domain and and become part of the public domain, which is one of the I think unintended consequences of trying to go broad with AI. If you stay focused on uh, repositories of data that you can control and you know the quality of, I think you minimize the challenges of, of getting out there and getting misinformation or false information. It's it's like a lot of computing systems, you know, garbage in, garbage out. You've got to have good quality data to get good quality results out of it. So I'd like to uh, turn to your uh, other um, major objective when you became CEO, which is uh, diversity and inclusion. And you're a passionate advocate uh, for diversity and inclusion. Uh, you were recognized, uh, Dow was recognized by Fortune in 2023 as one of the best companies to work for. So uh, especially given the headwinds that DNI and ESG are facing, why do you believe DNI is so important at Dow, and where do you think the company and the business community at large needs to go? Yeah, we. So I think diversity is something that's been important at Dow for the whole time that I've been here. But I would say, I think the shift that we made would, would be to focus on inclusion. And you know, when I put in the ambition that we wanted to be the most innovative, customer-centric, inclusive, and sustainable, the idea was we wanted to create the right culture and the right environment in the company that that people wanted to come to work here, they were proud to work here, and they felt like we were doing something different from the others. I, I think it's difficult to be innovative without being inclusive. We're trying to bring diverse perspectives to work on challenging issues. Uh, you don't want groupthink. That doesn't help you get there. So you need a culture that allows people to come in, allows them to have a voice. And also as a kind of a judgment-free zone, you know, where the background isn't the focus, it should be the opportunity that they have in front of them and give them a chance to succeed. 
when we do that, that creates, you know, generation changing and, and family sustaining opportunities. And in some cases for portions of the population that have never had that before. And if there's one thing that brings our whole system together, you think about whether it's any religion, any country in the world, you know, the golden rule is kind of the bottom line. You treat other people the way that you want to be treated. That, by the way, is one of the most important things to recognize when you're dealing with customers is they look at you not at, not just as a provider of materials and solutions, but they also look at you and they make decisions about who they want to work with. And a lot of times they make that based on the way they see you treat each other at work. And so I think we've, you know, I think by focusing on inclusion first, we've really kind of cracked the code at how do you get diversity and how do you keep it, you know, without it becoming a quota system or just chasing numbers. Wow. It's, and, and so critical to uh, innovation, uh, as you were saying. So um, final question, who, looking at um, your leadership values, uh, who are the most important leadership role models for you? And, and what advice would you give to the next generation of leaders? Well, I think I'd have to start with my parents. I mean, my parents were great role models. They they taught us a great work ethic. They they were both teachers. Um, they, um, you know, really encouraged us, my sister and I, to go into school and go into professions that they thought could give us the best um, possible path forward. I, I would say my grandparents, you know, both my grandfathers had died when I was younger, but you know, my grandmothers both lived to be in their late 90s, great role models working um, and, you know, set great examples. And I had some great teachers in school. We had a kind of a unique uh, school in a small town outside of Kansas City. And we had high school and middle school teachers who had come from industry, you know, places like uh, Texas Instruments, pharmaceutical companies, um, you name it. And, and they brought in that perspective to us in school. And so I think when we went through school, we, we were looking at the world a little bit differently when we graduated and, you know, quite a few successful people came out of that environment. So they, that, those probably had the biggest influence. That's really interesting. And, and, well, uh, what advice would you give to the next generation of leaders? Well, look, I, leadership is about, um, you're the number one change agent. Like in my job here, I, they say, what, how do you describe the job? I, I've got to be the number one change agent here. Um, you have to set the bar higher. You have to define what's possible for the organization. You have to push the organizations to its limit. In the absence of you doing it, if, if people don't see you do that, then they're not going to do it. But you also have to understand what are all the consequences of, of going there. You know, what are the, what are the goals that you want to achieve, what are some of the unintended consequences? And that's, you know, back to your policy question earlier, that's why you've got to get it right. You've got to find the right balance. You can't just solve for one thing at the expense of everything else. Our job is to figure out how to do it better, but we also have to be affordable and we have to be sustainable long-term. And that burden falls on the leader to make sure that we're getting all the diverse perspectives in to make those right answers. Jim, thank you for joining us today. Uh, this has been very insightful, and we really appreciate and, and respect, and it's our privilege to honor your leadership and the Dow's, Dow's team leadership 
uh, on these crit in these in these critical areas and on these critical issues. So, uh, our p- privilege and pleasure to be honoring you in October, and thank you for joining us today. You have been listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board.